Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our all-church study, Anchored. This anchor of hope is the certainty and the promise that God is who He says He is, and that God will do what He said He will do. What God does for us is grounded in who God is, and knowing who God is provides an anchor in life, giving us a secure foundation on which to build our lives. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you here to our Granby campus as well as to our online campus. We're glad you're here. We hope you'll join us again next week. Now, we're in this middle of this series called Anchored, and this series is all about the attributes of God, that, that God is who he says he is, and that God will do what he says he will do. Hopefully, you've you've picked up a copy of our Anchored book. There are still a few more physical copies available. You're invited to pick one up after the service, or you can go grab one right now if you want to take notes. You can also go to our website, and you can download those. And and this is a way for us as a body of Christ to, to be together studying the same things that I'm preaching on on Sunday and in our small groups uh, during the week. And if you'd like more information about that, please send us an email so that we can help you get involved in a, in a life group. That's what we call them. And there's also some daily scriptures just to allow you to meditate and let God speak to you on those attributes that we are studying every week. Now, today we're going to talk about an attribute that uh, may seem a little strange. Uh, it's the attribute that God is one. Now, think about this. Now, There have been countless movies and stories written about some love-struck individual who is searching for the one, the the one that they feel will complete them, the one that they believe will be the love of their lives, the one that they believe they're destined for. So we understand that concept of looking for the one, but today we're going to be talking about the fact that There is one God. There's only one true God. And this is an attribute that we need to study because it's essential to us and our faith as followers of Jesus. So we're going to look first in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to read one of the most important verses in Scripture. So this is from Deuteronomy 6. It's uh, verse 4, and here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, uh, amongst followers of Judaism, that verse is known as the Shema. And uh, Shema is uh, literally a a Hebrew word that that means here. And so the first word in the verse is here. And so this is called the Shema. Uh, Now, the Shema is actually uh, verses uh, 4 through 9. So let me go back and, and read the whole thing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, uh, The Shema is regarded by Jewish people as 
both a prayer and a statement of faith. In fact, it's so foundational that uh, to the Jewish faith that devout Jewish people pray the Shema three times a day, in the morning when they get up, in the evening, and before they go to bed. Now, uh, when you go to a Jewish friend's house, you may have noticed something nailed to the doorframe. And I'm going to show you a real tiny little video clip of this. It's called a mezuzah. So I'll go ahead and run that clip. It's a very tiny clip, but, but what that is, uh, that mezuzah is nailed to the doorframe of many Jewish homes, and it's actually a container. And, and inside that container are all five of those verses of the Shema written in Hebrew, rolled up in a scroll, and tucked inside. And, and so for a devout Jewish person, every time they enter their home, they touch the mezuzah. It's a way of saying a prayer without words. It's, it's a way of acting faithfully, of saying, God, I believe this. this is, there is one God, and, and I'm going to live for you. And, and this is something that is, is such a part of their faith. In fact, when years ago, I went to Jerusalem, and when I was in Jerusalem, the hotel I stayed in, on every single doorframe in the hotel, there was a mezuzah. So that for any a Jewish person who was staying there, they could uh, basically say that prayer every time they entered that. Now, so you see uh, from what we read in the Shema, this is actually a, a literal way of doing what God commanded there in the Shema, to, to write this on the door frames. You, you may have seen also uh, in pictures of uh, folks, uh, of devout Jewish people uh, that may have what looks strange, a little box uh, wrapped around their arm or uh, tied to their forehead. That's called a phylactery. And inside that phylactery is actually the Shema written and rolled up in a scroll uh, because they are taking literally these words. But l let's talk about why the, the Shema is so important. The Shema is so important because God gave us these words to remind us that there is only one true God in this world. And, and he is that God. And in the subsequent verses, verses 5 through 9, we see how to be in a relationship with him. And uh, this verse also gives us a, a, a foundation of monotheism. Uh, now, monotheism is the belief that there is only one God. And so, in, in the world of religions, their uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are all monotheistic religions. They believe that there is only one true God. Now, I think for many of us, uh, we may take that for granted, that there is only one true God. But think about this. In the culture, in the culture in which God spoke to Israel and gave them Shema, it was far, far from a monotheistic culture. Uh, in fact, when, when Israel was rescued from Egypt, which, by the way, uh, Egypt had multiple gods, so it was a polytheistic culture. When, when, Egypt was when Israel was taken out of captivity from Egypt and they were given the, the land of Canaan after walking wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, um, they came into this land and, and uh, 
Canaan was inhabited by many different people groups. The Bible tells us there were Amorites, there were Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and Canaanites. And, and every single one of those cultures were polytheistic. They, they had multiple gods that they worshipped. They were not monotheistic. And, and they worshipped so many different gods that... Uh, there were gods and altars to different gods uh, that were dotted throughout the landscape where people could go and worship and make sacrifices, honestly, to the God of their choice. And when you read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you know, it's, it's actually pretty clear that some of the Israelites um, also struggled with a belief of monotheism. In fact, they, they began to absorb and began to worship the, the gods of all the other people groups in the land of Canaan. And they, they struggled with the idea that there was only one God because for them, uh, in those other cultures, uh, there, there was a fertility God that would bless the land or provide you with children. There was a God who would bring rain for your crops. There was a, a God that would protect you and, and on and on and on you go. And so you, you see in these cultures that this was attractive to people and it, and it pulled them away. And, and in scripture, God talks to his people and, and he actually says that when they worship these other gods, these false gods, that they're being unfaithful. In fact, he even puts it in, the, in very graphic language. He says, you're, you're an adulterous people. You're having an affair with other gods instead of knowing that I am the one true God. Now, one scholar points this out. Uh, the primary assertion of the Shema is that there is only one true God. It's also asserted that this true God is Israel's only God. The Israelites should acknowledge no other God. The Lord, Israel's God, cannot be known or acknowledged in many forms like the Canaanite gods could be. Neither can the Lord be identified with any heathen gods syncretistically. There is only one Lord, and alone he is God. And so Israel's God loves them and has entered into a covenant relationship with them where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So what we understand is true for the Israelites. It's also true for followers of Jesus, for, for Christ followers. Now, the Apostle Paul, remember this. He, he was a, a, a convert out of Judaism to become a follower of Jesus. And so he, in his own writings in the New Testament, we see how he talked about his perfectionistic tendencies. He, he, he was very compulsive about keeping the Jewish law. In fact, he referred to him, himself in, in one of the letters in the New Testament as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he, he actually uh, said that as a Pharisee, because he was a Pharisee, that, that he uh, kept the law of God perfectly. And so he knew the Shema. In fact, more than likely, he grew up, and maybe even after he became a follower, he still prayed, probably prayed the Shema three times a day because that was part of his relationship with God. And, and so it was important to him. But look what he wrote to the church in, in Corinth, which interestingly was predominantly a non-Jewish culture. And if we know anything about Greek culture, because that's where he was headed with the Corinthians. They were uh, part of Greece. Greece. Uh, 
Greece, uh, Greek culture was uh, polytheistic. So these Christians, that this church that had been started in Corinth was a polytheistic culture. And this is what he wrote to them. He said, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods and whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So he's saying, listen, I understand you live in a culture where there are temples on every corner and you can go and, and worship one of those gods and that's the culture you live in. And he was actually talking specifically to them about people who struggled with should they eat meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god and now was for sale on the street. And so ultimately he says, listen, you don't want to cause somebody to stumble, so be, be careful not to cause them to stumble. But, but here's what he's saying. He's, listen, you know, I know that there's all these gods, lowercase, uh, that they're out there, but there's only one true God. And, and that's the God that you're supposed to worship. That's the God who desires to be in a relationship with you. Now, Paul was talking about this one true God in the first century. So what about us here? 20 centuries later, in the 21st century, you know, there are uh, polytheistic religions today that believe in many gods. Uh, Hinduism, uh, for instance, does that. Uh, also, um, some would say Mormonism does that. But the, the biggest temptation, I think, in our culture today is to worship other gods that are found in our culture. The gods of our culture. And, and they can be people and they can be things. Think about it. Uh, think about the way our culture worships sports figures and entertainers. Think about how our, our culture worships leaders, some politicians, sometimes successful people, sometimes religious leaders. And while Christ followers are supposed to live in the world but not embrace the culture of the world, some of us struggle to not embrace the ways and the culture of this world that we're immersed in. And we worship things and sometimes people that we're not supposed to because there's only one true God to whom we're supposed to worship and be in a relationship with. So, therefore, we see why the truth of this scripture is, is so important to us. There is only one true God, and, and that is the God who deserves all of our love, all of our Worship, all of our attention, all of our devotion. Now, some of you are probably thinking, if there's only one true God, why do we Christians talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? It's a good question. So let me answer that. Uh, let's talk about what in Christianity we call the Trinity. And, and the doctrine of the Trinity is a unique doctrine, belief of, of Christians. And it, it is a distinct belief. Now, if you go and open your Bible and, and search for the word Trinity, you're never going to find it. The word Trinity doesn't exist in Scripture. But the word Trinity has come to describe the Christian belief that there is one true God who reveals himself to us in three distinct persons. The person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, while the word Trinity 
uh, as I said, doesn't appear in Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity is very clear in Scripture. In fact, in Scripture, we're able to see uh, the very clear and distinct roles of God the Father, of God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we see how they work in concert to, uh, together with one another. And the Bible gives us a clear and defined picture of what God the Father does, which is different from what God the Son and God the Holy Spirit do. And then there's also a clear picture of what God the Son does, which, again, is different than what the Holy Spirit does and what God the Father does. And, of course, it gives us a picture of what the role of the Holy Spirit is and what it does, which, again, is different than the role of God the Father and God the Son. So, you know, while, while we've spent a lot of time looking uh, at the testimony that there is one true God, we see that the Bible tells us about the triune God. So let's look at this. We, and as we do, we're going to look at the testimony of those who give us that testimony in Scripture. But the most important testimony that we have to, to remember and focus on is the testimony of Jesus. And so I think all of us are familiar with uh, what the greatest commandment is. Jesus was approached by a teacher of the law, and he was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And we all can rattle off, actually, those verses that we read in the, in the Shema. But in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus answers. And he starts off saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on and he says, You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then remember, he says, and there's a second like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But, but here's the big picture. In the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus affirming that there is one true God, recognizing that he is part of the Trinity, but saying that there is one true God. He knew this. He recognized this. He testified that. And throughout scriptures, we see the testimony of others. We see Moses testify to it. We see the prophet Isaiah speak to it on numerous occasions. And both the apostles Paul and James speak to the fact that there is one God. But while there is one God, we also see scripture that tells us the doctrine of the Trinity. That God reveals himself to us in three distinct persons. And, and to reinforce that, uh, we're going to look at some scripture and we'll see the different times that each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are referred to. Now, uh, we could do countless, but I'm only going to look at a couple. Uh, on, on numerous occasions, uh, we read about, we read about God the Father and which we understand is the name that Jesus used. Remember, when he was asked by the disciples, how should we pray? How does he start the prayer? Our Father who art in heaven. And we, we see, as we saw just a moment ago in the, in the passage from Corinthians, uh, that Paul talks about that there is one God, the Father, from whom all things come and through whom all things live. And John and Paul also speak to us about divinity, not just of God the Father, but also of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, telling us that uh, God is present to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there are many scriptures that talk about the Trinity uh, and the distinct and individual nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But let's look at the baptism scripture 
that's recorded in all in three of the four gospels. In Mark's gospel, this is what we read. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son with whom, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So there we see in, in, that, in that short amount of scripture about Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, we see that Jesus is present. We see the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and we hear the voice of God the Father say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We see the distinctive relationship that these three persons of the Trinity have and we see the interconnectedness of how they relate to one another. Now, in other scriptures, other verses, we see the different roles of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For instance, in John's gospel, we read this as Jesus speaks. And this is what he says. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show, themselves, show myself to them. So those verses illustrate the, the distinct roles of the three persons of, of the Trinity, we see that Jesus is saying very clearly, listen, I'm going to leave. Now we know from hindsight that after his death, he was raised back to life. And 50 days later, uh, 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And then 50 days later, the, we uh, have the celebrate that the Holy Spirit was sent to be God with us, to dwell within the believers of Jesus forever. But we, we see this interconnectedness. God the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to be with us, to be the presence of God with us. As Jesus said, I won't leave you orphans. He's sending God the Spirit to be with us. And we see that role there, that that's so important. So we begin to, to understand this idea of the Trinity, that, that God is one but reveals himself to us in three distinct ways. God is our creator, he is our provider, and he is our redeemer. Now, knowing all this is helpful for us to understand who God is and how God relates to us. But we have to ask ourselves, what is our response to the one God? How are we going to respond? Let's return to the Shema. And again, I'll, I'll read it in its entirety. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols to your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorpost of your house. 
and on your gate. Now, translators will go back and forth translating that first word as either hear or listen. And so one scholar gives us some insight into how the Israelites understood the Shema and how they responded. He writes, Listen, O Israel, does not simply mean to let sound waves enter our ears. Instead, the word listen means to allow the words to sink in, providing understanding and generate a response. In other words, in Hebrew, hearing and doing are basically the same thing. But how should Israel respond to hearing that the Lord alone is their God? Now, he writes... Love the Lord your God in this context. Love isn't simply that warm, fuzzy, emotional energy we feel when we like someone. The Bible actually tells us that love is action. You love someone when you act in loyalty and faithfulness to them. So for Israel, to love meant faithful obedience to that covenant relationship that that had been established with God. Those terms are the laws and the commands that make up the body of the Old Testament. And obedience to those laws was never about legalism or trying to earn God's favor. Obedience in the Old Testament is about love and about listening. It, It... If an Israelite loves God, it will make it easier to listen and absorb God's teaching and guidance. And this is why the words listen and love are so tightly connected in the book of Deuteronomy. So so think this through. I mean, as children, uh, oftentimes out of our desire to love our parents, when our parents ask us to do something, We do it. We obey. Why? Out of love, out of a loving relationship. And and, and so that's the idea here, that that listening is doing. Listening is loving and following God. So if that's how the Israelites understood what the Shema meant, isn't that how we should understand what it means? Our response to knowing that there is one true God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should result in us not just hearing what the Shema says, but doing what it says. And isn't there some other place in Scripture where it tells us that? The brother of James, the brother of Jesus, James, said these words. He said, Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you will only be fooling yourselves. So, you know, if we just listen to God's word, if we don't do it, we're fooling ourselves. If If we're just listening to God's word and not doing it, we're really not in a relationship with God. We're not following what he says. So what would it look like if we did what the Shema says to do? We would love the Lord their God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And if we love God with all that we are, that would be a supreme kind of love where we would put God at the pinnacle of our lives. And we would let everything else fall in its appropriate place with God 
at the supreme place in every part of our lives. After all, what do those latter verses of the Shema describe? It looks like that we're supposed to live our lives loving God and following the commands. It's supposed to be always on our hearts. We're supposed to teach it to the next generation. And when the Shema talks about taking these commands with us, talking about them at home and as we walk along the way, as we get up and get down, it's telling us that we should do whatever it takes to follow God, to live our life, to stay connected with him forever in the relationship. So with that in mind, we have to ask ourselves some questions. If you believe that there's one true God and you're loving God with all that you are, are you placing him above all other things? That means God should be held in a preeminent place in our lives above all possessions, above all all other people, above all other personalities, above all other preferences, even above all politics. God created us, and he knows the things that we're passionate about, and he knows how much possessions or people or positions can occupy our heart and our mind. He knows what we admire. He knows the things that we follow. And God doesn't want to take those things away from our lives, but he wants to hold the preeminent place in our lives and let all of those other things fall into the right relationship under God. So we need to trust God and love him and recognize this, that, that God is not saying, I want something from you when he tells us to love him with all that we are. He's saying, I want something for you. I have entered into this relationship with you because I love you with all that I am. And he demonstrated how much he loves us by sending his one and only son to die on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven and come into a relationship with him and spend eternity with him. He has done whatever it would take to make a way for us to be in a relationship with him. So this is what he wants for us, not from us. So why does this attribute of God matter? It matters because it demonstrates to us the preeminent place in our lives that God should hold, and it demonstrates to us how we should respond to God. Nothing should compete for God's place in our lives. Nothing should distract us from that relationship. And by the way, sometimes it will, and we have been given the means to receive forgiveness and ask for forgiveness and to restore that relationship with God and enter back into that in a forgiven relationship. And so it's so important that we understand that. It's so important that we recognize that and we pursue him with all our hearts because God desires for us. He wants to bless us with his love and he wants to hold that primary position in our lives. So I want to move into a time of prayer for us today. And in this prayer time, what I want to encourage you to do, if God hasn't been in that primary place, I want to encourage you to ask for forgiveness and say, God, I want to put you in the supreme place in my life. And then we'll move into a time 
of praising God for that position in our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you love every single one of us and that you have done everything that needed to be done so that we could know that love. And you have desired to enter into a relationship with us, a covenantal relationship where we would see you as the supreme God in our lives, the only God, and that we would give you all of our lives, our love, our attention. And Lord, we recognize that we have failed at that. And so, Lord, right now in, in this moment of silence, we're just going to confess that we have failed and we ask your forgiveness. So, so hear our silent prayers. God, we thank you that you have made a way for us to receive that forgiveness, that you offer it to us and that we can be washed clean from our sins. And so now, Lord, we, we praise you that you are the one true God to whom we want to give all of our allegiance and all of our attention. And we commit to following you as the one and only God in our lives and in this world. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our closing song as an attribute of worshiping our one true God. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.